0: If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you know we've been in this series that we're calling Digitally Remastered, and we're talking about our relationship with something that affects all of our other relationships. Usually in the month of November, we talk about our most important relationship, marriage, parenting, all those sorts of things, friendships. This year, we're talking about our relationship with technology, because that relationship certainly affects all our other relationships. And if you were with us in our first week together, we said... There are things in life that are okay to do, but that they become not okay when they stop needing our okay. And we use 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, where Paul says that everything is beneficial, but not everything is helpful. Everything is beneficial, but I won't be mastered by anything, Paul says. And we say when technology gets to the point that it controls us rather than God being in control of our lives, that's a problem. Last week, we said that if we want real relationship, which I think we all desire, if we want real relationship with God and with others, then we have to come out of hiding. Nothing allows us to hide behind filters and, and, and portray a reality that isn't real, like technology. And if we really want real relationship with one another, and real relationship with God, we gotta come out of hiding and be the people that we really are. This week we're gonna talk about something different, but something that I think is highly applicable uh, where we are as individuals, where we are in our our churches, and where we are nationally. I think what we're going to talk about today is, is incredibly applicable and important. Technology, one of the things that technology does that is fantastic, one of the things that it is great is it connects us with people who are like us. I think sometimes you could find yourself growing up in a neighborhood or in a household where you had a different interest or a different hobby than the people around you, And you might live for years being the only person you knew that had that particular interest, but now, thanks to the internet, thanks to technology, you can connect with people like you instantaneously. I remember a couple of years ago, Lori and I were visiting some of our best friends that at the time were living in Arlington, Virginia, just right over the Potomac River from Washington, D.C. And they they lived really right in the heart of the action in Arlington. They were very close to the National Cemetery and the Iwo Jima Memorial. They were in an apartment complex right there. And if you've never been to downtown Arlington uh, before, it's a very busy place. A lot of people out on the street, a lot of uh, uh, walking activity, a lot of pedestrians. And on the main road there, there were all sorts of shops or all sorts of restaurants and bars like you'd find in downtown Boston. And when I noticed something when we visited one Labor Day weekend. I noticed that as we walked down that street, every restaurant and every bar had a college flag hanging outside of it. And so we went by one, and there was the Penn State flag, and we went by another one, and there was uh, West Virginia, and another one, Ohio State, and Michigan, and as we walked, I could just see all these different flags. And as we walked, we, we kind of figured out what was happening. D.C. is such a transient place. Not very many people are from there, but people go there to work and to live for a time. And so on Saturdays, when college football is happening, Each establishment has become the local hangout for that group of people, the people who are fans, went to school there, grew up there. And so you had all the people from Ohio State out there cheering for Ohio State and all the people from Pennsylvania out there cheering for Penn State or whatever the school was as we walked down the street. And when I think about it, I think I I love the fact that our technology has put us in a place where it's very easy to find people who think like us, who have the same passions as us, who enjoy the same things as us, and we can connect very easily. You know, the reason everyone knew to go to the same school for the Virginia, or the same restaurant for the Virginia game was because someone posted it on Facebook. The Virginia group of DC, or whatever they're called, posted, we'll be at this restaurant for the game at this time, and now everyone can gather. And you know what this is like. I don't know what your hobbies are or what your likes or dislikes are, but if you're into collecting stamps and you don't know anyone else around you that collects stamps, my guess is you could go online this afternoon you could find thousands of people who are like-minded and like what you like. Technology has made it easier than ever before to find our tribe, hasn't it? That's a, that's a nice thing. Tribes can be good things. Finding a place where you feel supported and encouraged and people are like you and they like the same things as you and they laugh at the same things as you. Finding your spot, finding your group of people can be a really helpful thing, can't it? It's a good thing, but something is happening. Something is ongoing when it comes to how technology helps us to form our tribes. And it's something that we ought to be aware of. And I actually think, It's something that Jesus himself warned us about 2,000 years ago. Have you ever Googled something that you wanted to buy? And then you you looked at the website where it was for sale, and maybe you didn't even buy it, but then you went on another website, and all of a sudden you noticed all the Google ads on that website were the exact thing that you would just search for. I remember one time a few years ago, Lori and I uh, finished uh, purchasing a, a car, and we signed all the paperwork at the dealership. And then about an hour later, that that afternoon, I went on Instagram, and the first ad I saw was for the exact same vehicle that we had just finished purchasing that day. And there was something about that that I didn't like at all, But but you probably have had that experience where you search for something, you look at something, and then you start to notice. It just starts popping up more and more. And the algorithms that run our social media sites, the algorithms that run YouTube, the algorithms that run uh, many of the sites that we go to, they are becoming better and better at showing us the things that we want to see. And in fact, they do it very unapologetically. I'll let Mark Zuckerberg speak for himself, the founder of Facebook. This is how he put it. A squirrel dying in your front yard may be more relevant to your interests right now than people dying in Africa. And so what he said in this this statement to colleagues, I'm not sure this is a statement he ever wanted to get out, but there have been many, many places that have quoted him saying this to colleagues. What he's saying is, so if we have a user who cares more about the squirrel in their front yard than they do people in Africa, keep showing them the squirrel in their front yard. And sure enough, more and more as we find our tribes online, everything that we begin to see online Becomes from that same group of is from that same group of thinking, that same group of people, that same tribe. Eli Pariser is a author and and thinker in this space, and he gave a TED talk in 2011. And in his TED talk, he said one of the things that concerned him as he was using his social media is is that his friends that he knew thought differently than he did on fill in the blank topic. They were posting. And even though they were his friends, he was no longer seeing their posts. He was watching as as his Facebook feed was filtering out the people that were even his friends who disagreed or thought differently than he did. And his point in his talk was, I think I actually need to hear from them sometimes. I actually think I need to hear their voice, but but the algorithm is deciding for me what I should see. In fact, this is what he says. This is the quote that he used in his TED Talk, Eli, there it is. The internet is showing what it thinks we want to see, but not necessarily what we need to see. The internet is showing what we thinks we want to see, but not necessarily what we need to see. And this is something for us to pay attention to. That yes, it's wonderful to be able to find our tribe. But as we become immersed in our tribe, what's on the rise is not just the joy and encouragement that comes from finding your people, but a real sense of tribalism. And here's the thing that I think is true and I think that Jesus warned us about 2,000 years ago. Tribes are often fine, but tribalism is not. Tribes are often fine. I, we can find some tribes, if we wanted to make a list of tribes and find some tribes that are terrible, I would agree with you. There's some t- tribes out there that are, that are not good tribes. Groups of people with certain thinking that's not a good thing. But in large part, tribes are fine. Finding people you connect with, finding people you think like, finding people that, that you like to be with is fine. But tribalism, refusing to talk to people in other tribes, refusing to show love to people in other tribes, vilifying other people in other tribes is not. And I don't know if you've noticed, I probably don't have to belabor this point, tribalism is on the rise. And it's on the rise in our country, and it's on the rise in church. Church. And this morning, I just want us to consider this for a couple minutes together, that we ought to be very, very careful as we form our tribes and as we run to technology to help us gather together with other people. That while we may find a place where we belong and are encouraged and supported, we ought to be very careful that we don't engage in unhealthy forms of tribalism. It's just an interesting world we live in right now. I heard this the other day and it just made me think, and I I promise you I'm not trying to make any sort of political statement here other than trying to show how our nation has changed. In 1983, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was confirmed to the Supreme Court. The Senate voted. The Senate voted 96 to three to confirm her with Ronald Reagan as president. In 1986, Ronald Reagan was still president And Anton Scalia came to be uh, confirmed by the Senate to the Supreme Court. If you know anything about Anton Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, opposite ends of the spectrum. Very different politically. Anton Scalia was confirmed 98 to 0. So think about this world, where three years apart, two people who are very different with the same president in office are confirmed 96-3 and 98-0. And you just look at our situation now, where we're so much more divided. And I'm really not trying to make a comment other than pointing out how much has changed and how tribalism is on the rise in our world. Jesus, I think, makes this point, that tribes are often fine, but tribalism is something we ought to be aware of. And I think he does it in Luke chapter 10, which is what we're going to look at here together for a moment. There's this moment in Jesus' ministry where this lawyer comes to talk to him. Now, when you read lawyer, don't think civic law. Don't think think like Roman law. The Romans were in charge here at this time. You have to think like godly law. He was a lawyer of God's law. He was a religious figure, a religious leader among the people. And this lawyer, this religious figure, he comes to Jesus in verse 25, and look what he says. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, And with all your mind and your neighbor as himself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. So within the Jewish law, there were hundreds of laws to keep. And then there were 10 big ones. You know them as the 10 commandments, right? Charlton Heston gave those to the people. And so you had the 10 commandments. And then you had, it was all boiled down to these two commandments. These two commandments that they said, if you love God the way you should, and you love your neighbor the way you should, you'll actually end up keeping all the rest of them. So as a way to simplify the whole deal, this was the top of the pyramid. You love God, you love your neighbor, you'll end up keeping all the rest of them. But the man has a question. The lawyer has a question. And it's not about loving God. It's this. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor We have to appreciate this man and and his status in the society. As a lawyer, as someone charged with understanding and helping people keep God's law, he was of very high status, an important religious figure. There are groups of people that he would never interact with because he was just too important. There are groups of people that if he interacted with them, he would become unclean and couldn't do his work because of the cleanliness laws. And so he didn't interact with them. There's no way this gentleman is interacting with any Romans who are in control of the Jewish people at this point. And so he's saying to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Because you know Jesus, and it says to justify himself, I'm not going to interact with those Romans. And I'm not going to interact with that group or that group or that group. So who then is my neighbor? And Jesus tells him this story. Even if you haven't been to church much or don't know much about the Bible, you actually may recognize this story. And I don't have those words on the screen. Let's just listen to it together. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Here, I'll just give you a fun, this one's free. I'm going to give you a fun fact. Next time you're at a dinner party eight months from now and you want to entertain people and impress them, Man goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. What direction is he headed? South. You would think it was south, but I I hate to do this to you. I I wouldn't ask if it was that easy. Jerusalem is a city that sits on the hill, right? It was a trick question. I feel terrible about it. Jerusalem was a city that sits on a hill. Anytime you left Jerusalem, you were going down. So he's going northeast to Jericho. There's your fun fact. You can impress everybody next time you get together in a year from now. So Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest, this is important, priest, same class as the religious lawyer, was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, same class as this lawyer, religious figure. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, we'll come back to that Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set on him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus knows what he's doing, and he's frustrating this lawyer as best as he can with his story. Because the lawyer is not going to interact with certain people. And the lawyer is like the Levite and the priest. If he sees a man who's beaten on the side of the road, if he interacts with that man, he is going to become ritually unclean. He's going right back up the road back in Jerusalem, back to the temple to to get clean. So he's going to pass on the other side, just like the Levite or the priest would. The Samaritans, if you don't know, were a group of people that the Jewish people did not get along with. The Samaritans, for lack of a better term, and forgive me for this term, they were, they were seen as half-breeds. They were half-Jewish and then half-Babylonian or Persian or whatever, whatever um, empire had had the Jews under exile at some point. And the Jewish people looked down on them Had nothing to do with him. So for Jesus to make the Samaritan the hero of the story was a direct shot at this man's pride. And look what happens here in verse 36. Jesus says this. He says, Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. It would be way easier to say the Samaritan, but he's not going to say the Samaritan. He's way too prideful to say the Samaritan. He knows he's better than that guy. So he says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. For the moral of the story, for this lawyer to go and be like a Samaritan, to model his life after a Samaritan, would have been incredibly difficult for him to swallow. And Jesus is taking a shot Not at his tribe. Never once does he tell this man to stop being a lawyer. Never once does he tell him to stop being a religious figure. He takes a direct shot at his tribalism and says, you think you're better than this person who would be attacked or the Samaritan that helps in this story, but you should show them love just like you would anyone else. I think Jesus demonstrates over and over again in his ministry that you and I are most like God when we love those who are least like us. You and I are most like God when we love those who are least like us. There's this thing that Jesus did when he selected his 12 disciples that I think is worth noticing. First century Rome. A lot of different groups among the Jewish people, a lot of different tribes. Two to point out right now. One of them were the Zealots. The Zealots were a group that hated Rome. The Zealots, by the time uh, Jesus came around, the Zealots were a militant group. They wanted to take down the emperor. They thought God was only king, which I agree with, but they thought That they wanted to take down the emperor and they were ready to do it with whatever force was necessary. And you can imagine what a zealot rally would look like in this time when that group of people got together. They were ready to fight. And we know this not just because of what scripture tells us. We know this because the first century historian Josephus talks about the zealots and what they were doing and how they would try to go after Rome. They were a fiery group. They were ready to act. Another group that existed in that time were the tax collectors. The tax collectors, they were sellouts to Rome. They were, collecting, they were Jewish people collecting taxes from their own people on behalf of Rome. And if Rome said, collect 20%, the Jewish, these Jewish tax collectors would go to their own people and collect 30% and keep the extra 10. They were liars and cheaters, and they had sold out, sold out to the Roman establishment. Zealots did not like tax collectors. Tax collectors did not like zealots. And when Matthew writes the list of disciples that Jesus chose, the 12 people he chose to be closest to him, there's only two that he gives a detail about as to which tribe they belong to. And look at what he points out. This is chapter 10, verse two. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. That's so interesting to me. That Jesus would walk in and see tribes that were so divided, And he would say, I need one of you, and I need one of you. And you are going to be in this group of 12, and you are going to show love (laughs) to one another. And guess what? My kingdom is big enough for you, and it's big enough for you. And you're both going to have to change as you come into it, but the kingdom includes you both. I really wish we had some of those fireside chats between Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector when they realized who they were and what they were doing there. I wish we had that detail. But Jesus models something for us there, something we ought to pay attention to. When our tribalism stops us from showing love to other people, it's a problem. There's a pastor of a big church in Dallas, Texas called, his name is Matt Chandler. The church is The Village Church. And I remember years ago, he was so frustrated because he had walked through the halls of his church, and he had heard someone say in the hallways of the church, I grew up in one of those suit and tie churches. I love coming to this church because I can wear jeans. And this church with everyone in jeans is so much better than those churches that people wear suits and ties. And he said to his congregation, you're so hurt by going to the suit and tie church and how you felt judged. Don't you realize when you say that the jeans church is better than the suit and ties church that you're doing the exact same thing? That it's fine to have tribes. It's fine to go to a church where people dress more casually and it's fine to go to a church where people dress more formally. But when tribalism rises and you can no longer show one another love, it's a problem. We are most like God when we love those who are least like us. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying as we sit in the middle of the pandemic coming out of an election. I am not saying that you have to change everything that you believe. I'm not saying that you have to support what other people believe. I am saying, if you were walking down the road and you saw someone from the tribe that's hardest for you to deal with beaten on the side of the road and you're in a place where you would pass by, that's a problem. That's what Jesus is saying to us. And I think we really have to check our hearts. The gospel, God sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, be raised again, is God showing you and I extravagant love when we were not part of his tribe. We were off doing our own thing. We, are the, we were the betrayer. If anyone had reason to say, forget those people, it was him. But he showed us love in that moment. I think where Jesus says this most clearly is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And I'll end with this. he writes these words. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, What reward do you have? Let's pray. God, I thank you for the love that you have shown us through Jesus Christ. Lord, that while we were still sinners, while we were doing our own thing, while we were walking away from you, you showed us great love and mercy God, I thank you for the love that has been shown me when I least deserved it. And God, I admit to you this morning, it is so easy in our world to only show love to those that are are in my own group and to avoid showing love to those who are not. God, help us to do this well. Help us to show the kind of love that you showed us that you might be glorified. And God, may we stand for truth. May we stand for what is right. May we stand for you and for the love that you've shown through Jesus Christ. May we stand for it all and still be able to show love to those who may disagree. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.